It's always, it's always dangerous asking children questions. <laughs> They're very honest, but uh, it's always a lot of fun as well. It's great to be here on a Thanksgiving Sunday. I know that every Sunday should be, there should be cause for thankfulness and for expressing that in gratitude as we do each week, but I think it's, it's uh, a wonderful thing that we put extra emphasis one Sunday out of a year on simply being thankful and simply giving God the glory for everything he's done for us through the course of a year. Of course, as an agricultural and a farming community, we have much to be thankful for again in, in the, the form of full bins and uh, another successful harvest. Uh, we also have much to be thankful for in our church family as we see uh, disciples being, being created, being brought up to maturity in the faith through our Sunday school programs, through our youth programs, and even for us as adults as we grow in our faith we have much to be thankful for God's provision for us. So I'm sure that there was a lot more uh, that we could have expressed from our open mic period if we were to go on of what we all have to be thankful for. But uh, we have to uh, remember that everything, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father, including his word. And that is what I am most thankful for. I know that's cliche coming from a preacher is that he's thankful for the Bible. But Let's just say that if the preacher didn't have his Bible, well, there wouldn't be a preacher. So I'm quite thankful for the word, and uh, I'm thankful that God has a word for us today. And so would you bow with me, and let's ask God's blessing upon his word as we enter into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God. You are a God who loves us unconditionally. You are a God who has shown us that great love by not only remaining at a distance, but you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, into this world to save us sinners who are lost and separated from you. And you showed us this love by dying on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. And so, Lord, as we have expressed our thankfulness to you for many different things, whether the harvest, whether good health, family, friends, we ultimately, Lord, want to thank you that you have given us the gift of salvation and that because of your gift, no matter what our circumstances in this life are, we can always be thankful and give you the praise. And so, Lord, this morning, as we thank you again for your word and we enter into it, we pray, Lord, that you would add your blessing by your Holy Spirit. I ask, Lord, for you to anoint these words, Lord. May they be from you. I pray that you would give me the the strength and the courage to speak them clearly as you would have me, Lord. I give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So a teacher of a Sunday school class of grade 8 students was closing his lesson on thankfulness one day by asking his students to each give a one-sentence prayer of thanks for something good that had happened to them in that last week. And so they began to pray and most gave the typical sort of prayers. Thank you for fun with my friends. Thank you for my comfy bed. Thank you for my snowmobile. Thank you for good food. And so on. Then one boy prayed, thank you that I was sick on Friday. Well, this brought about the predictable snickers from the class, and the teacher kind of shushed everyone, and they carried on until everyone had gone around the circle and everyone had said their prayer. Finally, the class was over, and the teacher turned to the boy and asked, and why are you thankful that you were sick on Friday? To which the boy replied with a wide grin, because it meant I didn't have to go to school. Now, 
I think that probably says something more about the boy than it does about his prayer, but we all have different things to be thankful for today, don't we? Including for the students that there will be no school tomorrow, right? Who here is thankful for that, that there's no school tomorrow? Okay, there's a few hands going up. Teachers, too. Lots of things to be thankful for. But one of the things that we often fail to do is we don't often stop to think about what motivates our thankfulness. In other words, what is our philosophy of thankfulness? Now, that might sound like a fancy term, but we all have a philosophy of thankfulness, whether we realize it or not. It is our most basic and fundamental view towards thankfulness. It is the reason that we have thankfulness in our hearts to begin with. And so let me ask you, what triggers your response of gratitude? What makes you say thank you? By what criteria do you evaluate that something is worthy of you giving thanks for it? Now, for the vast majority of people, our philosophy of thankfulness stems from our most basic wiring that we are thankful for things that we consider good and not thankful for things that we consider bad. Now, I know that seems like an oversimplification, but it's true, isn't it? If we think something's good, we'll be thankful. If we think it's not so good, we won't. And somewhere on that sliding scale, we draw the line of this is a reason enough to be thankful, but this is not something to be thankful for. And so it's something so simple that my almost two-year-old can get it. And his thankfulness, or lack thereof, can easily be understood by super cute smiles and giggles or by ear-ringing, spine-tingling, glass-rattling screeches depending on which end of the scale he's on. Now, of course, as we get older, most of us grow out of that stage. (laughs) I say most of us. Most of us become a little bit more mature in how we express ourselves and when we're not so thankful. We usually dial down on the screeching. But our fundamental philosophy, by and large, remains the same. Some practical examples for you. The farmer is thankful when the rains come at the right time, and not thankful when the hail comes at the wrong time. But that begs the question, is there ever a right time for hail? (laughs) I'm just just throwing it out there. I'm not sure if there is. Uh, The business employee is thankful when their good work is rewarded by a pay raise, but they're not so thankful when they take a pay cut. The parent is thankful when the doctor gives their child a clean bill of health and not thankful when they diagnose them with a serious illness. A student is thankful when their friend sticks up for them in the playground and not thankful when that friend abandons them to face the bully alone. Now, whether we realize it or not, this simple good-bad scale is what almost always determines the degree to which we are thankful. And then what happens is we carry over this simple evaluation tool into our relationship with God as well. Our philosophy of thankfulness then becomes our theology of thankfulness. Now, before you get scared off by another fancy term, the basic difference between these two terms, philosophy and theology, is this. Philosophy is the study and fundamental understanding of all of life, whereas theology is the study and fundamental understanding of God. And so when the two are understood and applied properly, they complement each other perfectly. But all too often, this isn't the case. For the Christian, our theology of God is what should shape our philosophy towards life. But too often, it is our philosophy of life that shapes our theology towards God. This is like putting the cart before the horse 
and wondering why things aren't working properly. And so very often, without thought or consideration, our theology of thankfulness is also based upon that simple good-bad scale that we used as two-year-olds. When God's presence feels near, we are thankful, and we express it with grateful hearts. But when he seems distant, we are not so thankful. When he blesses us with prosperity, we are thankful. But when we're having a hard time paying the bills, we are not. When we see visible signs of God at work in people's lives, changing hearts, we are thankful. But when it seems like no one will ever change, we are not. When someone encourages us for our service to God, someone gives us a compliment, gives us a pat on the back, we are thankful. But when someone insults us for being a Christian, we are not thankful. But this is exactly where a proper, biblically-based theology of thankfulness can and will turn our lives and our attitudes upside down. Turn with me, if you will, this morning to our text from Acts chapter 16, and there we'll begin in verse 22. The text we had read for us earlier, we will revisit the key verses here, beginning in verse 22 to 24, that I would like to focus our attention on this morning. There I'll begin reading, verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. We're picking up right in the middle of the action. We'll get the context later. Just want you to imagine this scene. The crowd joins in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Verse 23. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received those orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, on the good-bad scale, does this sound like a situation that you would be thankful for being in? Anyone? (laughs) Probably not. I don't think any of us would be thankful for being put in the situation that Paul and Silas are facing. Now, to put this account into context, the year was approximately A.D. 52. Paul was on his second missionary journey, and Acts 16, verse 12, tells us that their travels took them to the city of Philippi, a Roman colony and one of the leading cities of Macedonia, which is located in modern-day Greece. Now, on the Sabbath, Paul, Luke, and Silas are walking down to the river outside of the city gate, seeking a peaceful place for prayer. But as they're going along, a female slave who was demon-possessed and was being used by her masters to earn money for them as a fortune teller, was following the group and yelling out, These men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And this went on for some time. She had been following the apostles and repeating this as the Spirit was, was persuading her to do so. And so this has gone on for some time. Finally, Paul has enough. He turns around and he commands the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And just like that, the unclean spirit leaves the girl. She is delivered. The side effect of this deliverance is that the slave girl could no longer tell fortunes. And this resulted in costing her employers a, a source of income and money on the bottom line. And while you probably already know that nothing angers a greedy man more than costing him money. And so furious with Paul, they stir up the people. They whip up a kangaroo court, complete with trumped up charges, and they have Paul and Silas publicly shamed, stripped naked, severely flogged, and then imprisoned in a vile dungeon 
with their feet put into stockades. Now we have to pause here and check our own pulse as we hear these things. For most of us who are familiar with Paul's accounts, we know that he was arrested, whipped, imprisoned, shipwrecked, stoned, so many terrible things done to him so many different times that we hear this story and we sort of chalk it up in that category of, ah, here's just another one. We almost get desensitized to the things that Paul faced simply because of the volume of the persecution that he faced along the way. But I want us to really stop and consider this exact story, what they were facing and what it must have done to them in their spirits of facing this sort of opposition. Think about this. Paul, Silas, they, they are taken out of what they are doing. They're not causing anyone trouble. And they are done, have done unspeakable things to them. Recently, I read from a devotional series entitled 21 Days to Beat Depression. This description that brought home the severity of the situation that they were facing. I want you to listen to this description. Set down in the belly of the earth, an ancient prison was a place that reeked of urine and vomit. Prisoners received only one meal per day of moldy bread accompanied by dirty water. When a guard brought food, he kicked the prisoner in a place that would bring excruciating pain. Roman prisoners sat in their own excrement day after day. Varmints and insects continually crawled over the prisoner's chained body, not to mention biting at their raw and festering wounds from the flogging they had received. Now, I want you to do your best to imagine Paul and Silas's condition. Close your eyes, if you will, and see their wounds. Smell the vile stench of the dungeon. Feel the cold metal shackles against their skin. What a perfect opportunity to grumble and complain, isn't it? What would you do in a situation like that? Wouldn't you want to grumble? Wouldn't you want to whine? Wouldn't you want to vent at the injustice of it all? You know, it's a time like this where throwing a pity party sounds like the right thing to do, and we wouldn't have blamed Paul and Silas one bit had they done so. After all, they had good reason to grumble, complain, and feel sorry for themselves. But is that how they responded? Is that what they did? Listen to verse 25. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were, catch this, Paul and Silas were praying and singing. Does that sound right to you? They're in this condition, chained up in a Roman prison, rats running over their bodies, Roman guards cursing obscenities at them, they're dripping in blood, and then they are praying and singing praises of or hymns of praise unto God and the other prisoners were listening to them praying and singing there in that vile dank dark dungeon in the middle of the night backs bleeding feet in stockades making sleep next to impossible Paul and Silas are singing and in a place that had only known the curses of the condemned and cries of despair came a sound that those walls had undoubtedly never heard before. Voices raised in hymns of praise to God. I invite you to close your eyes again, if you will. And put yourself in that place. Now, we don't know what hymns they sang what language they were singing those hymns in, though we could probably make some educated guesses. 
We don't even know if they were good singers or not. They could have been horribly out of tune for all we know. But imagine you're one of those prisoners in that prison, the worst place on earth, and suddenly you hear the sound of singing rising through the bars. Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices who wondrous things hath done in whom this world rejoices who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Now I like to think that unlike me, Paul and Silas were singing in beautiful two-part harmony, (laughs) kind of like what Vernon Burt did earlier. And though we don't know what hymn they sang, nor the quality of their singing voices, it is not the quality of our voices that determines the quality of our worship. I wonder, has there ever been an offering of thanksgiving so pleasing to God as the one made by Paul and Silas that night? Has there ever been a worship service more beautiful than the one offered from feet in stockades with backs bloodied and bleeding, and yet their hearts are lifted to God in worship. My friends, it is not the quality of our voices that determines the quality of our worship. It is not, it is not what we do in our outward man that God is pleased with. It is what we give him in our inward man, in our spirit. And our spirit, when it is in tune with God, cannot be broken by outward circumstances, no matter what man may do to us. And we see this beautifully depicted in Paul and Silas that night. And as those other prisoners are listening, they couldn't quite believe what they were hearing. And notice what the verse says, to a man, they listened. They listened as songs of praise to God transcended their outward circumstances and lifted them above the deepest, darkest dungeon and into the very presence of God. And my friends, did you know that people are listening to your life as well? They're listening to you. And though they listen somewhat when things are good, they are listening most intently to the song of your life when things are bad. So let me ask you, when do you suppose that your testimony for Christ is the strongest? When things are going great or when things are tough? You see, it's easy, in fact, it's expected to praise God when life is good. That's not much of a testimony. It is still a testimony. Of course we should give God our gratitude when things are good, but it's what people expect. But when you're going through the same problems that everyone else is going through, or worse, people will take a really close look to see if your faith is real. They will look to see if your Christ is real. And that's when your testimony is real. People will examine. People are listening to the song of your life. Is it a good testimony for Christ or a bad testimony? Here in prison, Paul and Silas, they had a captive audience. No pun intended. 
And there with that captive audience, their testimony in the darkest dungeon had an impact. Our testimony of our lives will have the greatest impact when things are the darkest as well. So let me ask you, if Paul and Silas's theology of thankfulness was based solely upon how good or things bad or how good or bad things are, on a scale of one to a hundred, how thankful do you think they would have been in those circumstances? Anyone want to throw out a number? Scale of one to a hundred? How thankful would they have been on the good bad scale? Ten? Five? One? Minus 100? Probably that's where I would have been at in those circumstances. I would have been under the scale. I would have been so upset at my conditions. You'd be hard-pressed to think about things possibly getting any worse. And yet they sang. They sang because they had a theology of thankfulness far different from that of the world's. For rather than basing their thankfulness upon how good or bad their outward circumstances were... Paul and Silas based their thankfulness solely upon the goodness of God, his great gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, and the hope they had that God could still bring something good out of the worst of circumstances. I want you to listen to Paul's teaching on the subject in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Remember, he's just faced a whole lot of those things. Can any of those things separate us? Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons... Neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is Paul's theology of thankfulness. My friends, who or what can separate you from the love of Christ? Who can take away your gift of salvation? Who can rob you of the living hope of heaven? that is assured within you by the gift of the Holy Spirit. If the answer is nothing and no one, then like Paul and Silas, you have a theology of thankfulness that is able to praise God even from the dungeon. Because if the greatest thing in your life cannot be stripped away from the persecution of man, you can praise God even in the darkest of places and the darkest of times. And now just to be clear, Paul and Silas weren't rejoicing about their circumstances. They were rejoicing in the Lord. You see, God doesn't expect you to rejoice about all the bad things that are happening to you. It's not, all right, cancer, or I lost my job, yes, my house just burned down, fantastic. That's not what this is about. This isn't some sort of masochistic doctrine that delights in suffering for its own sake. Instead, it is a perspective that delights in what God is able to achieve through our suffering, for God's glory, our ultimate good, and the good of others. Listen to what Paul wrote in first part of me in Second Corinthians chapter four, verse seventeen. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 
This was Paul's perspective of what they were experiencing in prison. Our light and momentary troubles. Light and momentary. Like the boy in our opening story who was thankful for being sick on Friday because he could see the silver lining that had enabled him to miss school, we too can be thankful to God in our troubles because if God is in charge of our lives, then we can trust that he has a plan and a purpose for it all. That even when it makes no sense to us in the moment, we trust that God is still working out something through the darkness that we cannot yet see, but we lay hold of it through faith. And this is precisely what Paul and Silas did. Though they were not able to free themselves, though they were powerless to do anything about their circumstances, they chose to pray and to sing to the one who is able to do more that we can ask or even imagine. And look at what God did through it. First, a sudden earthquake shakes the foundations of the prison. Secondly, the prisoners are freed. Their shackles fall off of their arms and hands. The the prison doors burst open, but yet they did not escape. And thirdly, the jailer is so moved that he believes in Jesus for salvation, and he and his entire family are baptized that very same night. And the story concludes with the very next day, Paul and Silas are pleaded with by the city officials to leave the city and were even given an official escort to leave unharmed. The same God who did that for Paul and Silas, my friends, he is still the same God who is able to do that for you. He can take the darkest places of your life and bring about something beautiful through it. Even when things seem hopelessly broken, whether a family, a marriage, or a relationship with a son or daughter. He can take a broken heart, a crushed dream, or a seemingly dead end and bring about a future and a hope. He can take the pain of rejection, of being slandered, of being gossiped about. He can take that and give you hope in him. The loss of good health, the loss of financial security, or the loss of a loved one. Even when depression may seem the deepest and the word hope may seem like nothing more than a cruel joke. Even there, my friends, God is able. Even there, God is worthy of our praise. And even there, we can choose to give thanks to him. I want to conclude today with the story from 1636. We're amid the darkness of the Thirty Years' War raging in Europe, a German pastor named Martin Rinkhart is said to have buried 5,000, 5,000 of his parishioners in a single year, on an average of 15 people a day. His parish was ravaged by war, death, and economic disaster. In that heart of darkness, with the cries of fear ringing outside his window, his own family's security very much up in the air, he sat down one evening with his children, and he wrote them a table grace. It was some time later that John Kruger set that table grace to music, and the words go like this. Now thank we all our God, with heart and hands and voices, who wondrous things hath done, in whom his world rejoices, who from our mother's arms hath led us on our way, with countless gifts of love, and still is ours today. The song that I said for you earlier, that I sang for you earlier, was written 
in a dungeon. It was written in a place of darkness where everything seemed to be going wrong. And yet, out of assurance and unshakable faith in God, he could say that with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. My friends, can you say the same thing today? That no matter what you're facing, no matter what your situation, no matter what impossibilities you might be facing, God is able to do increasingly and unimaginably more than we can think, and he can do it for us. And so what is our position right now? What are we called to do? Pray and praise. Pray and praise. Sing out your heart to God from the dungeon. And sit back and watch what God will do. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are Lord over all. You are Lord even over the dungeon. You are Lord even over the darkness. And that, Lord, when the darkness covers us, it feels as though your face is hidden and far from us. Even there, Lord, when we choose to seek your face, When we choose to praise you, even from the dungeon, there, O Lord, you delight in our praise. You hear our prayers, and you will answer us according to your wisdom, according to your mercy and your great love. We thank you, O God, for the way that you came through for Paul and Silas. And we thank you, O Lord, that it is a template and an example of how you want to come through for us, no matter what we are facing today. So I pray, Lord, for each one who is here I know, Lord, that without knowing any circumstances, that each one of us comes here with our own worries, our own secret troubles, our own trials. And so, Lord, we give each one of those individually to you right now. And in this, Lord, we choose to say, you are able, and we believe by faith that you will bring something good through our darkest fears for your own glory and for our ultimate good. We believe it and we claim it in Jesus' name as we go forth. May we go forth with a theology of thankfulness that is far deeper, Lord, than the one that the world has. May we go forth with the sure knowledge that if Jesus is with us, what can separate us from your love? Nothing and no one. And so we go forth in that confidence, looking forward to that day where we will see you face to face. Bless your people today, Lord. Bless this church. And bless families as they gather in thanksgiving today. May it be all done to your glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.